So if you're joining us for the first time, uh, or the first time in a while this morning, great timing, perfect timing, because we are beginning a new series together. Uh, This fall semester, now I still think like a campus minister, I call it a semester, for you it's not a semester. For this fall season, we're going to consider the Ten Commandments from Exodus chapter 20. And this is a series I've titled Loving God. It's how we seek to love God in the way that we live, the people that we are as we seek to reflect His character and His likeness in the earth. And so as I introduce the series this morning, and this is all introductory, we'll begin next week with the first commandment. But this morning is on the prologue to the Decalogue, those opening introductory words that set up the law for us, that give us the understanding of how it was given. But I am this morning going to read the entire Ten Commandments. I won't do that every week, but I think as we are introduced to this and we hear the context this morning, let's just go ahead and hear it all in one sitting, shall we? So Exodus chapter 2, excuse me, Exodus chapter 20, verses 1 through 17, give your attention to God's Word. And God spoke all these words, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt out of the land of slavery, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an image in the form of anything in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God punishing the children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses His name. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it you shall not do any work. Neither you, nor your son or daughter, nor your male or female servant, nor your animals nor any foreigner residing in your towns. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea, and all that is in them. But He rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male or female servant, his ox or donkey, or anything 
that belongs to your neighbor. And that is the law of God, the moral law given to God's people. So years ago, as a campus minister working with students, I was talking to a small group of students and just bouncing around some ideas of what we might study in a future semester. And I said, well, what would you all think about studying the Ten Commandments? And the response was interesting. It was, nah, let's not do that. That's boring. Let's talk about grace. Let's talk about something positive that will win people. Okay, there's some misperception about the law of God. And this morning, I'd like to address those misperceptions and try to help us all be on one page of how we perceive the law of God, how we're to perceive the grace of God revealed in the law and how it is the very structure of who even we as a church are called to be in the earth. So the law. Uh, Sinclair Ferguson has this quote. In Scripture, the person who understands grace loves law. We love the Lord and we will love His law because it is His. Now I realize there's going to be many different perspectives even in this room just as there were on my patio talking to a group of students. Some of that Sinclair Ferguson quote probably sounds a little wrong to you. Wait a minute. If you love the law, you, you, you understand grace. And if you understand grace, you understand the law. I thought these two things were opposed to each other and in conflict with each other. Well, much of the ministries of our day suggest such things. But this morning, I think, I trust that we'll see the continuity of God at work and what His gospel message has said. And so the first thing, first point, I have four points for us this morning. And the first one is this. The context of the law is a context of grace. The law is given to us in a context of grace. What in the world do you mean? Well, this is the whole nature of that prologue, the introductory words that were given in verses 1 and 2. Listen again to verses 1 and 2 from Exodus 20. And God spoke all these words, which is to say, pay attention, everything I'm recording and about to say, this is the word of God. Okay, that's verse 1. Verse 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. And in that one sentence, the Lord reminds His covenant people, His church, we have a long history. Remember who you are. Remember who I am, the living Lord. I delivered you. I rescued you. I saved you from bondage in Egypt. Now, having saved you, having loved you, here is how you are to live in the earth. And so the context of the law is a context of grace. He is speaking to the very people He has delivered. And this deliverance, of course, is historic. It's going to sound like Sunday school for just a second. You remember the Lord had called Abram and said, Abram, I'm going to make you a blessing 
to all the earth. Through you the nations will be blessed. And he purposed through one man, through Abram, through Abraham, he would bless the earth. And there are several ways in which he blesses the earth, but one of them is those people being salt and light, New Testament imagery. But they are living out the law of God, reflecting and modeling the likeness of God to the earth. And in that way, God's covenant people were to be a blessing, just like you and I are to be a blessing to Greenwood and the greater area. And so God had shown grace to these people. He had historically connected with them. He had redeemed them from the Egyptians, from Pharaoh in Egypt. And you remember the context that that these men, these women, these families were living in in Egypt. They were in bondage. They were in slavery. They were in misery. And that's all encapsulated in that language that you'll remember of their being called to make bricks without what? Straw. They were burdened by Pharaoh, burdened by Egypt. Their labor was toilsome and miserable. To build bricks without straw, completely difficult operation. The straw would help dry the bricks, air out the bricks. The straw would strengthen the structure of the bricks. Some of you who are engineers understand this and can explain this. Without straw in the bricks, much of their work would just crumble. And they had to start all over again. And Pharaoh demanded, I'll give you no straw, but your quota of bricks is unchanged. Now go to work. And that's the context of bondage. That's the context context of slavery. And the Lord said, remember those days. I'm the living God who called you out of that, who delivered you from that, called you by my name to myself, And now here are the Ten Commandments, the Ten Words, the Decalogue, which is what Decalogue means, the Ten Words. Now that I've redeemed you, this is how you're to live in the earth. And that's how it's a context of grace. You and and I have heard so many things about the law. Even as, as children, I can remember watching cartoons where some character, maybe it was Bugs Bunny, is is on an escalator on his way up to heaven. And he's to appear and to give an account of himself. How have I performed the law of God? Can I get in by my merit? And so we've heard all kinds of confusing things that make us think that the commands of God, the Decalogue, are our form of merit and meritocracy before the living God. It's not true. They had been saved and delivered and called out of bondage and then and only then given these ten words to direct their path. The Lord had used His covenant name, His personal name. He had given it to these people. He had said, you're my treasured possession. You're the apple of my eye. And so the context is clearly one of grace. Secondly, there are three, at least three, there are more than three, common misperceptions about God's law. And this is where we might have many different perspectives in the room, and I'd like to sit on each of these just for a moment. So search your own heart and where you might stand in what I'll call three common misperceptions 
about God's law. And not just the Ten Commandments, but all of God's law as it's given in the Old Testament. His moral law, His civil law, His ceremonial law. And the first misperception is that God's law is oppressive. You know, when God starts giving out laws, it just means, you know, we're miserable. It's like when you were little, mama making a to-do list of chores for your Saturday, right? Oh, here's all the to-do things. I was going to eat cereal and watch cartoons all day, and now she wants me to clean out closets and cut grass and tidy up the carport. We receive God's law wrongly in our minds when we see it as that, when we see it as miserable and oppressive. I won't have time to read it, but Deuteronomy chapter 20, verses 1 through 9, right before the giving of the law. You read that this afternoon, Deuteronomy 20, verses 1 through 9, and look at how freeing and gracious and liberating God's law is to His people. I'll just leave that as a teaser. Go read the start of Deuteronomy chapter 20. And the next time you think God's law is oppressive, be like, nope, can't be. Deuteronomy 20 chapters, verses 1 through 9. The second common misperception that you and I tend to have is we think of the Ten Commandments as a kind of ladder. The meritocracy. The earning our standing before God depending upon how we grade out on the Ten Commandments, right? When we view the Ten Commandments as a ladder through which, by which we try to ascend into the presence of God, that is an absolute misperception. That is an effort in self-justification. And quite literally, it's how the world understands the law. They think, we think that about the law, and we don't. Romans, Romans chapter 3, verses 21 and 22. But now apart from the law, the righteousness of God has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness is given through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. See, the Apostle Paul says, no, it's not a ladder. Righteousness is apart from the law it's by faith in the person and in the work of Jesus. So consider your own view and practice and consideration of the law. Have you fallen into the thinking it's a ladder by which you can ascend into the presence and satisfaction of the living and holy God? If you're thinking that way, that's a misperception. What Paul says in Romans chapter 3 redefines, it erases that view altogether and it points to Christ as the object of our faith alone. And the third common misperception, perhaps this is the one that my student had when he said, nah, that's boring. We don't need that anymore. That misperception is that the law is obsolete, that it doesn't matter anymore. That's Old Testament stuff. That's old news. None of that. God doesn't care about any of that anymore. And of course, Jesus himself said in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, which I have here. Jesus said, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. 
So we can't make the mistake of thinking that the law of God's obsolete. We can't make the mistake of thinking that the law of God is a ladder. And we must not make the mistake of receiving God's law as if it's oppressive. So what are three uncommon but right perceptions of the law of God? So we've seen the three negative. How about three positive uh, just to balance out the room a little bit? Three uncommon but right perceptions of God's law. Number one. The law portrays the Lord's nature, Yahweh's nature, His character, and His likeness. The law is revealing something to us about the nature of our God, the character of our God, what He is like, and what He wants His people to be like. Some of you who follow sports, particularly college football, know that the NCAA and the NIL, the name, image, and license agreement where college students can now draw money because of their name being used, their image being used. They can be licensed to do such a thing. Because we understand that a person's image, their name, their likeness, it means something. And that's the same concept going on here. The law of God is how He reveals who He is to His people. We look at the law of God and its demands, its righteousness, its purity, and we learn something about the law giver. Secondly, the law reveals the extent to which sin has perverted humanity. When we look at that righteous law that God has given to us that reveals His character his nature, His likeness, when we really look at that law, we realize that's not me. I don't do that. I fall short here. I messed up there again. And we learn something not only about God, but we learn something about sin and ourselves. And so God is using His law to show Himself and to reveal something profound to us about ourselves. And then thirdly, and very importantly, the law is embodied in the person of Jesus. When you read that law and those Ten Commands, and you're like, wow, God is holy. He demands righteousness. And then you conclude, I'm none of those things. I fall short on everything. And then the third piece is, but that law, here it is, is a verbal portrait of who Jesus is. It is a description of Jesus' perfection in words. Only Jesus and His righteous life perfectly fulfills the demands of that law which we just sang about. And so those are uncommon. Those are not the first things people are saying about the law, but I would wish they'd be the first things we would say as a church family about the law. That the law reveals to us the nature of our God. The law reveals to us the sinfulness of our own hearts. The law reveals to us a verbal portrait of Jesus and who He perfectly is. And then fourthly, and lastly, three faithful uses of this law. Some of you recognize that language. You know, this is the concept given to us by John Calvin, 
You can study that later if you're interested. But quite simply, it's, it's this. That law of God, it serves, it functions for us like a mirror. It serves us like a lamp. And it serves us like a bridle. How so? Well, it serves us as a mirror as it reflects and shows us something about ourselves. So in the morning, you awaken, you go through your routine, and probably at some point, you look in a mirror to see if anything's changed, to see how you look that day, to see if your hair is in place. That mirror is telling you what you need to know about yourself. And there's a very real sense in which the law is a mirror telling you about your sinful self. Now, it's not always a great thing to look at yourself in the mirror when you first wake up, right? Not the first thing you want to look at. Well, we can have that response to the law of God as a mirror. Don't really like being told or reminded how sinful I am. But that's one of the right uses of the law. Something's got to inform you and remind you over and over again, you are a sinner who needs a Savior. You are a sinner who needs a Savior. Israel received this law, and it was to show them the holiness of their God and the shortcomings within themselves. And so it is with us. In that way, the law is like a mirror. Paul says in Romans chapter 2, he says... Indeed, when Gentiles, when unbelievers who don't have the law do by nature the kinds of things required by the law, they are a law for themselves, even though they don't have the law. They show that the requirements of the law are written on their hearts. Their conscience is also bearing witness and their thoughts sometimes accusing them, and at other times even defending them. The Apostle Paul is saying, look, if you're a human being created in the image of God, you will find that the law and its righteous expectations are somehow etched on your heart. They're written on your heart. Instinctively, you will know that what God's calling human beings to do is right, it's just, It's fair, even though you will suppress that righteousness and not want anything to do with it. It is written on your heart. It is in your nature, your fallen nature to know, but it's true, but it's right. It's there. This weekend I was cutting grass. I have a lot of grass to cut. I ran out of gas, and at that very moment, my neighbor pulled up on the other side of the fence And uh, he thought I was stopping to chit-chat. He didn't know I'd just run out of gas right when he happened to be coming there. So it was good. We created a little conversation. And he said, hey, I'm sorry if uh, the cows have been keeping y'all up for the last couple of days. And I said, what do you mean? I said, now that you mention it, I think I have heard them. He said, well, I just sold a bunch of calves. And so the cows, the mamas are upset. He said they will cry for three days. He said almost like clockwork, they will just scream, bellow, and holler for three days. He said it's almost like it's written on their hearts. 
And I said, say that again. It's if the animals, it's just, it's, it's in their DNA to know that those are their babies. And their babies have been taken away from them prematurely. And that causes some pain. Part of it is they've, they've, they're carrying milk and it's uncomfortable for them. But it's also this motherly longing for what is theirs. And he said it's just written on their hearts. They miss their babies and all they know to do is just to cry out about it for three days. The scriptures say the law of God is written on human hearts. It doesn't mean we obey what God has written on our hearts. It means deep down inside we know. We know it's not right to steal, to take someone else's possessions. We know it's not right to covet. We know it's not right to to commit adultery. These things are written deeply in our hearts, even though we are adulterers, even though we covet, even though we steal. Our hearts condemn us because they agree with God's law and its righteousness. The law also is a lamp. The law of God reveals to us the kinds of people God wants us to be. And in that way, it's like a lamp to our path. It's like a flashlight. Psalm 119, verse 105 says, Your word is a lamp for my feet and a light on my path. And so it is with the Ten Commandments, with the law of God. It's like a light casting, this is the kind of people we're to be. When we make decisions, these are the principles that govern the kind of people we want to be in the earth. And then thirdly, the law of God is like a bridle. Some of you have worked with horses. You know that the bridle and the bit are used to command the animal, to direct the animal's head through controlling its mouth. And in that way, the law is like a bridle. It restrains us from sin. We may have sinful temptations, sinful desires, but knowledge of God's law is like a bridle. It holds us back and says, no, don't go there. And as we heard in the New Testament from Titus earlier, it's actually the Spirit of God working in believers that empowers them to say no to ungodliness. So God's Word and God's Spirit work together in His people's lives to say no to things and to say yes to things. The question is, what kinds of things are you saying no to and what kinds of things are you saying yes to? And God's law is given to us that we might know His character, His nature, His likeness, that we might see our shortcoming and our failure to be the people He's called us to be, but then to give us that verbal portrait of Jesus that God sent His only Son to fulfill that law, that through Him, through His blood and righteousness, that we might not be regarded as lawbreakers, but be regarded as lawkeepers because of the one true lawkeeper who we trust by faith. Listen, it's popular, it's in you, it's in me, it's all in our culture to respond to the law of God like it's obsolete, like it, it just doesn't matter anymore, or that it's harsh, that it's oppressive. 
But my prayer for us as a church family over the next 12 weeks is that we'll see the law of God is beautiful. It is what it is to be human and to be redeemed. And it points us to Jesus and makes us thankful for Him. John chapter 14, verse 15. Jesus told His disciples, If you love me, what? You'll keep my commandments. Jesus is all for commands. He left His disciples with firm direction, firm instruction. If any part of you bristles at commands and commandments, my prayer is that God will soften all of our hearts to see that this is how God calls us to love Him, to obey Him, to trust Him, to seek to be like Him as we live in the earth. We're going to close with a song in just a moment. A familiar hymn that we've sung a number of times, I think. But I want to highlight the opening stanza. Just to give more appreciation as we prepare to come to the table this morning. The opening stanza of Let Us Love and Sing and Wonder. Let us praise the Savior's name, for He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. Now, I think I've told you this before, but those of you who are parents or when you were a child, you remember what it was to be hushed, right? Hush. Hush. Mom or daddy does that and it commands the room, right? You don't say another word. Jesus, through His perfect obedience, the hymn says, has hushed with authority, the loud thunder of the law, what would condemn us because of our unrighteousness, Jesus has hushed that condemnation with His authority. He's quenched Mount Sinai's flame, Sinai being where the law was given, the mount where it was given. He's quenched that burning judgment that was against us. And He did it through His own perfect obedience. And so we trust Him by faith to fulfill the demands of that law. And then by grace, in a context of grace, to call us to say, now in thankful obedience, go and be the people of God and let this law serve as your job description of the kind of people you are at home, at work, at play, as you fill the earth. You see, that's not legalism. That's learning to love the living God in the way that we live our lives. Let's pray that we can do that more and more. We'll sing, and then we'll come to the Lord's table. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your law. As the psalmist says, Oh, how I love your law, O Lord. But Lord, would you help us not just to love it, but to begin to embody it more and more? That we would be a people who by faith not through an effort in merit to earn love, but by faith seek to honor you in the way we live our lives. Lord, help us to repent for how we've made it as if it was oppressive. Help us to repent for how we've treated it as a ladder. And Lord, help us to see that it is never obsolete in the kingdom of God. Do this, Lord, we ask and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.